The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. The mental illness stories that get the most attention in the media, online, and even when we're talking to our friends are the ones that swing high and low, the scary stories, the statistics, the friend of a friend when things went really bad, or the incredible pivot stories that we all love, Naomi Osaka, or my previous guest, Andy Dunn, who manages bipolar disorder and sold his company for $300 million. But I had a real aha moment with today's guest. He has bipolar disorder. And he said, you know, we just don't hear enough about the stories of people who manage mental illness and have good lives, good careers, who climb the ladder, who show up, and who keep it together. This really, really resonated with me. My guest, Gabe Howard, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder 20 years ago. It's not that long ago, but it was a time with a lot less awareness, a lot less understanding, and tolerance around serious mental health issues. At the time he was diagnosed, he was working in the technology space, and he was let go from his job because of his disorder. And it raised real issues for him about health insurance and how he would live and pay for his life. We'll talk about his experience with work then and now, and how the stigma still persists in today's work environment. Howard is an author and host of a number of podcasts, including Inside Mental Health. I encourage you to check it out. Here's our conversation. Hey, Gabe. Hello. So, it's funny, I was reflecting. You and I know each other. We don't really know each other, but we met because we're part of a social group for people who have bipolar disorder. Yeah, yeah. We met online. Online friends are real friends. <laughs> oh, oh gosh, you don't have to tell me that. But I want to ask you a question, which is, why do people with bipolar need a social club? I, I think that sometimes there's just a shorthand in the world. Think of like mom groups. Yeah. Moms just want to get together and talk to other moms because they're not worried about being judged. They can use a shorthand. I know that my mom said once when we were talking about this that she wished mommy groups existed when she was raising children because she wanted to complain about her kids. And whenever she would complain about her kids to the general public, people would think that she was in trouble. And they'd be like, oh, are you overwhelmed? Are you okay? Do you need help? Well, you love your children, right? And what she wanted somebody to say is, yeah, kids suck. So <laughs> I, I think in our bipolar support group, we don't want people to ask us if we're symptomatic or change our med. Not, not. I mean, we do if obviously it's extreme, but sometimes we just want to get together and say bipolar sucks. And we want somebody to say, yeah, yeah, it does. Totally. I think the shorthand is really comfortable. Well, let's talk a little bit about your diagnosis story. A lot of people I have on the show don't get diagnoses of all kinds of things until they're adults. You were diagnosed in 
2003. I was, I was. Tell me where you were in life and what happened. I was 26 years old, and if you would have asked me an hour before I was committed to a psychiatric hospital if I had any mental illness whatsoever, I would have said, no, of course not. I'm not crazy. I'm perfectly fine. Keep in mind, when I say I'm perfectly fine, I thought about suicide as far back as I can remember, right? I I thought that was perfectly fine. I routinely thought that demons were following me around. I couldn't see them. They were delusions, but I knew that they were there, and I knew that they were out to get me and the people that I loved, and of course, I I thought that was fine. I had Mm. birth of mania and grandiosity where I thought I was a literal god followed up by bursts of of depression where I thought that I was garbage and that if I died (sighs) my mother and grandmother would be thrilled and all of this along with so many other things those are just the big ones all of that along with so many other things was my life and I thought that was perfectly normal because that's how it had always been for me I never experienced anything any different so therefore this is who I am, <laughs> and that's that's how. Right, I, and there's no TikTok, right? There's no cultural conversation that's like, "Hey, that's pretty classically bipolar." Yeah, there was no anything. You know, I I grew up in the late '80s and early '90s, and as I'm really fond of saying, here we are in 2023, and there's not robust mental health education, not to the level that we need. Yeah. So you can imagine just how crappy it was in the 80s and 90s. And couple that with, I was raised stereotypically blue collar. Now that's that's not an insult to my parents. It's just, they didn't go to college. So they didn't take psychology 101. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the doctor down the street as our best friend who could you know, say, I don't know, that looks like bipolar disorder. And this is a real big one. My father and I love him. I really, really do. But but my father raised me to be the stereotypical man. Mm. We don't talk about emotions. We don't cry. And anything bad that happens to you can be resolved by rubbing mud on it. That's how I was raised. So obviously when I started crying or when I was depressed, I didn't tell him because men hide this. And I believed mm. that was the system. So what happened? I mean, lots of bad stuff. <laughs> the... There's so much that happened, and it's it's always so difficult to to explain everything in any complete way in a podcast. So I I, I do like to warn people of that. I'm I'm cherry picking out little stories when I answer. <laughs> this is a careers podcast, so I want to look at it through the lens of your career because you were 26, assuming you were working. You, I was. You had a a direction in life. I had a good one. Let's look at it through that lens and and how your first hospitalization changed your life. Let's focus on a couple of things. The first thing is, is I worked in computers and you can't see me making air quotes, but I'm making air quotes because in the mid nineties, early aughts, you, you called it computers, right? We didn't have terms like, you know, IT or networking and nobody understood what you meant anyways. Hi, hi, I work in network infrastructure. What's that? He works in computers. So I worked <laughs> in computers. Now, the next thing that I want to- Can you fix the yeah, printer? <laughs> yeah, he works in computers. Of course he can. That was the shorthand of the time. It's how everybody understood it. And And here's why that's important, because if you could spell the word computer, tech companies would take a whole bunch of money and put it in a dump truck and dump it on your lawn. 
there was just mm -hmm. such a tech boom. So they needed a lot of people who understood technology. And it, because it was brand new, there wasn't a lot of people who understood technology. I made quite a bit of money because I understood the internet back before people even knew what the internet was. I understood computers and networking. So that was my career. And I, I point that out in relationship to this because here I am 26 years old. And ever since I graduated high school, I had always been making really high-end money for really high-end firms with really good health insurance. And mm. that's why this is super important because, of course, when I was diagnosed, I had a lot of money. I had a lot of insurance. I had a lot of family support. Plus, people had seen me achieving on this high level for so long that when I started acting oddly, they were either A, more supportive because they're like, well, that's really weird for Gabe. He's, he's a pretty high achiever. He owns a house. He's married. He drives a nice car. That's really weird. He's doing that. Or they associated it with excess. Oh, well, he just became, you know, an elite jerk. He, he's it all went to his head. Yeah, it all went to his head. That kind of thinking. Yeah. And obviously one is favorable. People who support me and love me, I love them. But the other side is just like, well, he, he's a jerk who got rich and now he hates everybody. And it, that's really problematic because obviously the symptoms of bipolar disorder, they do mirror you look like a jerk. So there's so much that we can unpack here. But what ended up happening was within a year of my diagnosis, I was fired. I was fired from this job and I, I needed this job because it had my health insurance and of course money. But what I want your audience to focus on is I really feel I was fired for two primary reasons. One, because I shared with my coworkers that I was committed to a psychiatric hospital with bipolar disorder, with psychotic features, because I wanted to kill myself. I told my coworkers mm -hmm. that because I had no reason to hide it. The second reason that I believe that I was fired is directly related to stigma. People did not know what that meant. They were scared of it. They couldn't get the answers. And suddenly I went from Gabe, who they loved, their, their favorite coworker, to scary Gabe, who, who might go postal, who might shoot up the place, who might be yeah. violent. We yeah. can't trust him. We don't want to work with him anymore. But in all fairness, was your behavior scary at times? Like, was it different? Did it? Freak people out a little bit, do you think? Not at work. Not at work. My behavior huh. at work was perfectly fine. I want to be honest with the question. I, hearing that your coworker, your big six foot three, you know, I, I was a giant, giant guy back then. I was really overweight. I weighed over 500 pounds. I was a big, 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 big young man. I was arrogant. You can't be that young and make that kind of money and lead those kind of teams and not have ego. I don't mm. want to dismiss that. But your specific question was, was I scary? No. No, I was not. I, I was never violent. I never punched anything. I never raised my voice. I never yelled at people. My symptoms of bipolar disorder never showed up in violence, you know, like like hitting or mm -hmm. yelling. It always showed up in cruelty. You know, I told my mom I hated her. But at work, it never came out because, of course, when I was extremely symptomatic, I just didn't go to work. Right. I had FMLA. I had time off. I had, you know, I was largely in, in charge of my own schedule. So that never never came out at work. Mm. It's not that it didn't exist. It never came out at work. And of course, this is the age before social media. So it's not like people were following me online and like, uh oh, he's posting ramblings or rantings or I didn't even have that. Right. So you got fired. I got fired, straight up fired. And here is the 
the terrifying part. They fired me because they said I was faking bipolar disorder. You know, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorders, committed to a psychiatric hospital for bipolar disorder. I was taking bipolar medications. I'd been in an intensive outpatient treatment program for bipolar disorder. I was seeing a therapist, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist. I was, I was desperately trying to get well. I was working my butt off. And they decided after a little over a year, you know, I, I'd missed a lot of work using FMLA and short-term disability. They had decided to investigate this. Wow. Was this a large company? Oh, huge, huge. Fortune 500. Wow. Yeah. And so they opened up an internal investigation, which they said was routine and that I needed to consent to it because it was part of, uh, you know, getting FMLA and getting short-term disability and, and using my insurance and things like that. So I had no reason to worry about it. I was like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm clearly not faking, so I will cooperate with this. So they opened up the investigation. I had to sign a waiver so that my medical records could go over. They, they read my medical records. They called me up and they talked to me for about 10 minutes. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and be nice and say that it was 15 minutes. Uh, uh, <laughs> they never talked to my doctor, and they declared that I did not have bipolar disorder and that I was manipulating the system for personal gain, and that was a fireable offense. And they uh, were going to fire me. I just kept saying over and over again, I, I have bipolar disorder. I don't. Why would anybody fake this? If I was going to fake something, there's way cooler illnesses to fake. If I'm going to be a liar, why isn't the sky's the limit? Right. It was so absolutely devastating. It must have been devastating. I want to make sure that the <sighs> listeners understand that it's bad to be told you're a liar. It's bad to have your morals and ethics questioned. But let's forget about all of this. I was very sick. And once I lost that job... I lost my health insurance. Mm. And this was back before the Affordable Care Act. Yep. If you lost your health insurance for more than 45 days, anything that you had was a pre-existing condition. And that pre-existing condition did not have to be covered on any health plan moving forward, which meant if I couldn't find a way to get insurance within 45 days, I would be uncoverable for life. Now, the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, fixed these things because of people exactly like me, yep. people who through no fault of their own lost their jobs. Therefore, they lost their insurance and then insurance companies wouldn't cover them. And then, well, all kinds of bad things happened. But I was terrified. I was terrified. I did not have any children. I was going through a divorce when this happened. <gasps> so that was great. My wife left me and then I, I lost my job. And then what? In some ways, really good stuff. I am always fascinated with social media. There's all these beautiful stories that go out that say like insurance company denies a wheelchair for disabled vet and local community gets together and right. builds electric wheelchair for right. and the And raises vet. a million dollars. Yeah. And everybody's like, oh my God, isn't that so good? The world is a good place. But I'm really ultra focused on what do you mean an insurance company denied a wheelchair to a disabled <laughs> veteran? No. Why is that not the story? <laughs> and it never is. So I sort of have one of those feel good stories. My parents stepped up. I did have money. My friends were like, okay, there's this thing called Cobra. It's going to cost a lot of money, but we're going to find that money, Gabe. How much money do you have over here? You know, I, I spent a lot of my money because of, well, first bipolar disorder made me spend it all, right? And then once I stopped the bipolar behavior, I had high medical bills and was working through that. So I did have money. I don't want anybody to think that I was broke, but all the way back in 2004, my health insurance was $1,300 a month. $1,300 a month is a pretty big hit 2004? today. 2004? Yeah, that's how much Cobra was. 
And you're thinking, why was COBRA so high? Oh, I don't know. A pre-existing condition is able to raise healthcare costs back then? <gasps> yeah, it was horrible. But we got the money. We got the money. And uh, you can be on COBRA for 18 months. So for the next you know, 15, 16 months, I was able, with the help of friends and family, to keep my health insurance and really focus on recovery. Now, mm. I wasn't in recovery by the time we were like, uh-oh, this is going to expire. There's no extensions. So now I was up against that 18-month thing again. And it, here was my choice. I could go back to work and get a job and get health insurance so that I could treat bipolar disorder. Or I could stay focused on my recovery, lose my health insurance, have bipolar disorder, anxiety, and all of this become a pre-existing condition, which at the time meant it would never, ever be covered again for the rest of my life. It was a rock and a hard place. Ultimately, I went back to work because that's what I needed to do. I, I needed health insurance. I could not let this lapse. I just want to focus in here because I think that this is probably resonant for a lot of people, even though a lot of people live in countries where they do have health care. And we do have the Affordable Care Act. And I live in Massachusetts, right? So I would have had hopefully different options to buy insurance. Although I know myself as someone who buys insurance, it is financially unsustainable. I think that so many people, especially people who are more financially vulnerable, have to make this choice every day for themselves, for loved ones. Am I going to recover or am I going to try to keep working because I can't afford not to work even though I'm really, really sick? And I'm always surprised at the number of people who are really mentally ill and somehow keep working because they have no other choice. There is so much to say. I get this unique blend of angry and sad all at the same time <laughs> when this happens. Uh, That's I, my I, dominant emotion, yeah, babe. It may well be mine as well. <laughs> But you ever seen something that its design is so poor, you just think they know, right? Like they have to know that's a bad design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just looking around like, is this a joke? Am I on some sort of like, you know, candid camera, some, some, you know, clip show? Is somebody making a TikTok video where they're going to make fun of me? Like you can see the flaw in it. You're not a social scientist. You don't have a PhD. You're not, you're not an engineer. You're not, you're not anything. You're just like a person and you're just like, that's a real problem. And everybody else is just thrilled with it. And you wonder what you're missing. That's how I feel about health insurance in this country. They're like, no, all you have to do is get a job and you'll have health care. Right. But, but you can't have a job if you need health care. If you are actively sick and you need the health care, you cannot work. That's what illness is. That's, that's illness 101. Were you able to keep a job? When you went back and got that job? So, you know, keep a job is a strong word. Bipolar disorder is very cyclical and I was being treated and I was, you know, getting better. I was learning and growing, et cetera. I was able to keep jobs. So I, yeah. I would get a job and last, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight months and then it wouldn't turn out okay. So then I'd go to another job. The good thing that I had is I did work in the IT space. So this is not uncommon. Back in 2006, 2007, 2008, and all the years before, people were constantly being recruited away from jobs. So I would go to a job for six months and then something would happen. And when I say something would happen, I would quit from the parking lot. 
I would drive there and I would have such a horrific panic attack that I would just call on my cell phone and, and I'd be like, I, I can't make it to work today. And they'd be like, you know, Gabe, you, you've, you've had, you, you know, many apps. I'm just like, you know what? I quit. And I just hang up. And then I would drive home and I, I'd be like, well, I don't have a job anymore. But I was able to then sustain Cobra. I was able, I'd have that other 45 days, et cetera. And then I would go get another job where I would last a few months. And I just, obviously I needed health insurance, but the principal thing that we were fighting against was that 45-day pre-existing condition lapse. As long as that never happened, we could be fine. But nobody would sell us health insurance for any amount of money. I, I want to be like really make sure that our listeners understand what I was up against. There was no amount of money that would allow me to get health insurance. Insurance companies did not have to sell it to you. There was pre-existing clauses, and when I said, I need insurance, they would say, no, you don't qualify, and they would deny me, and nobody would sell me health insurance. So I could only get it through an employer, which means I had to work, which created this cyclical effect of, you know how demoralizing it is to work a job and then have to quit because you cried too much or because you couldn't sleep or because you yes. couldn't handle it? And I just had to do this over and over again. I had quit probably six jobs like that. Yeah. I literally know the feeling. Yeah. And it, this is all why you're trying to get better, right? I'm trying to believe in myself. I'm trying to build up my confidence. And remember my dad, you know, men are stoic, men are strong. And you know what else men are? Employed. Men have <laughs> men provide. jobs. We are providers. That message was drilled into my brain from birth. You know, get a job, don't be a deadbeat. And I, I'm not saying it's a bad message. I want to be clear, like getting a job and sustaining yourself and providing for yourself and helping your loved one, these are great messaging, except they didn't work out for me. There's a lens that's really important, you know, as I'm thinking about my own experience. When I was in my 20s and early 30s, it was an experience of privilege. And I think a place where my femaleness I quit so many jobs. I moved literally around the world. I went off to Africa for six months. No one judged me. No one was like, she's a deadbeat. She's fine. You know, I, I come from a privileged background. She's finding herself. And it all just felt really smooth in retrospect. It didn't feel smooth then. And so I think we can't talk about this without thinking about different lenses of privilege that color this experience of being too depressed to work and quitting your job because you have no other option that you can see. I love the lens of privilege because I had so much of it. And yet during the process, I thought that I had so little. Mm. I'm fascinated by the fact that it took me four years to reach recovery. So from the time that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder to the time that I define myself as living in recovery, which I define as spending more of my life living my life than I do managing bipolar disorder, right? Because you've always got to spend some amount of time managing bipolar disorder. So just just to, to make sure that, that we're all on the same page there. That took me four years. And remember, during those four years, I had loving parents. I had a community. I lived in a big city, so I had lots of resources. I had health insurance. I had financial resources. I was never worried about being hungry, homeless, anything like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was never worried about being arrested. I was never worried about ending up uh, homeless in the prison system, right. in the jail system. I was never worried about probate, anything like that. Just a lot of support, a lot of resources, a lot of money. And I was in a big city, so if my psychiatrist annoyed me, I had plenty of choices for other psychiatrists. My support group annoyed me. I had plenty of choices for other support groups. 
groups. And when I got through that process, I described that as so broken and such garbage that somebody needed to fix it. That was how bad my experience was. So you can imagine my shock when I found out that this whole time I had been driving a Mercedes Benz. And my conclusion is that cars suck and that somebody should fix it. And then I realized that most of the world can't drive a Mercedes Benz. They're driving Ford Escorts and Hyundais and Kias and 10-year-old cars and taking the bus uh, or, or riding their bikes, walking. So just remember, I thought that the best scenario that was available at the time was so broken it needed fixed. It's awful. And the statistics of people who have bipolar disorder can look really scary, especially for bipolar one. And when we talk about people in the prison system and people who are homeless and people who are completely denied by society, mental illness is obviously a big piece of this and bipolar factors into that. It also contributes, of course, to to stigma. That's right. I really want people to understand that I am not mad at society for thinking so little of us. And people are like, whoa, what, Gabe, that's not a cool thing to say. Why are you saying that? Because how on earth could they possibly see us as anything other than a problem? Like you said, these statistics, the amount of people with serious and persistent mental illness in the jails, in the prison system. Okay, well, that creates this idea that people with mental illness end up in jail. Therefore, they're criminals. They're bad. They're dangerous. Let's talk about news articles. There's a shooting. Well, definitely somebody with a mental illness. Even if that's not true, that's how it's discussed. And then finally, this is the most reasonable and rational thing that I can ever say about the stigma of bipolar disorder. Crisis with bipolar disorder is public. Success is private. If I have an episode in a mall, it will be scary. It should be scary. I'm acting erratically. Maybe I'm throwing things. Maybe I'm yelling that a dragon is following me around. You are right to be scared of me. That is a reasonable reaction. But every single time I go to the mall, the grocery store, take a walk in my neighborhood that I am not in crisis, all you see is a boring middle-aged guy going grocery shopping, going to the mall or going shopping. It creates this idea that bipolar disorder is only crisis. It's only violence. It's only scary. It's only problematic. And there's nothing to balance that conversation out. So I understand why people get the wrong idea. I'm crying because, um, um, because someone I really love got a bipolar one disorder diagnosis. And my first thought was, what is their future going to look like? And I should know better because I have bipolar too. And I know and love a lot of people who have serious mental illness. But because of the world we live in, it does feel scary. And like you, I'm trying to tell success stories, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I'm trying to tell success stories, even when success stories are not as exciting as Andy Dunn. you know, who I've had on my podcast and is, you know, very famous at this point, co-founder of a big company who had extreme bipolar episodes, but triumphed and sold his company for hundreds of millions of dollars, right? A lot of our success stories are more banal, but you are so right that they need to be told. 
And it's hard to share the success stories that don't involve hundreds of millions of dollars because no one wants to hear them. No. I, I, <laughs> I want to hear them. I, I thank you. Thank you. But but I, I want your audience to understand how tough it is to get these stories out there. So, you, you know, you mentioned Andy Dunn sold a company hundreds of millions of dollars that got out there. That's fantastic. Yay. And I'm glad. Right. But like you said, most people are not going to make a hundred million dollars. For, for, forget about all the other stuff. Let's just start right there. Most people are never going to make a hundred million dollars in their lifetime. So we have to get the boring, the typical stories out there. But I, I want to point our audience to People living with bipolar disorder, we struggle to get the amazing stories, not as amazing as making $100 million, but still pretty damn amazing stories out there. Uh, for example, I had the privilege, the honor of speaking at Oxford University in England. I got to sit in the same spot as Mother Teresa, as Albert Einstein, <laughs> as ex-presidents, as Nobel Prize winners, and speak about my experience living with bipolar disorder. I was selected by them. When I think of all the things that I have achieved in my lifetime, this will probably be the one forever. That's because badass. Because I, I just, I, yeah, I, I don't know how it can be topped. And it, I'm not a stupid person. I, I work in the same industry as you. I created a press release. I, I got a publicist on this. I sent this everywhere to get word out that a man living with bipolar disorder was selected to speak at Oxford University. Nothing. Mm. Rejected. Rejected. It got zero press. Nobody picked it up. I couldn't even get my local news to pick it up. Okay, push back. Okay. There are a lot of people living with bipolar disorder who are doing mm -hmm. a lot of big things in this world. I mean, yes. part of my point is like, you know, it's like when all these companies are having new programs for neurodivergent staff and you're like, they're there. You don't need to hire new people necessarily. You have lots of neurodivergence on your staff. Either they're hiding it, you're denying it, or everyone's just not talking about it. So part of me is like, I mean, I'm really excited you got invited to Oxford, but there are bipolar people stepping up every day. And sometimes nobody knows that they're bipolar. And I'm okay with that. The downside of that is that means all of the success stories are not discussed. So bipolar man you know, right, destroys right, Maul right, right. because he thinks there's a dragon headlines. Bipolar man gets invited to Oxford to speak not a headline. So why would the general public believe that we can achieve anything? Give me an example aside from making a hundred million dollars, which I think if we're honest with ourselves, the reason that made the news is because of the money. Well, it's America. What else do we care about? Exactly. So <laughs> while it's great that bipolar disorder got some, some overflow, the real reason that Andy Dunn was in the news is because he made a hundred million dollars. It wasn't because he made a hundred million dollars with bipolar disorder. And if we huh. can't get those stories out there, then we're just kind of sunk. And I want to swing back to what you said about companies not looking in their own ranks. Forget about the media. Forget about the press. Forget about society. Let's talk about the culture of companies, right? So they've decided that they want diversity and, and they want to engage neurodivergent people and they want to be inclusive. And as you pointed out, even in their own little microscopic, mini little culture that is their company, they still didn't do it. 
they still didn't find the people who are already there and rise them up. They went out and found new people, ignoring the people that have literally contributed to their companies and their cultures. So if we can't fix that, if we can't get a single company to look at its own people and find them and advance them and celebrate them, then yeah, why would people think that people with bipolar disorder can achieve anything? You need loud mouths like Gabe in order to get anywhere. And yeah, there's another loud mouth, middle-class white guy who's screaming about something. Great. I, I, <laughs> we need so much more. We just need more. I want to talk about your career. So when did you stop? Because it's my understanding you haven't worked in a corporate setting in, in a while. What was the pivot point when you thought this is done this isn't working I'm going to I'm going to go out of my own that's where my story gets slightly ever so murky because I'm not 100% sure about it. The first thing is I I was finally able to string along enough jobs and find the right fit. I did reach recovery, right? So so now I'm stable. What I discovered was fundraising. I'm a talker. Mm-hmm. I, I love people. I had worked in sales in, in, in high school. Uh, then I went to IT. I found fundraising because it was basically sales, right? It was community relations. It was, it was talking to people about the mission. And not so surprisingly... It was a nonprofit charity that I was volunteering for, a mental health charity uh, who I was volunteering for. One day they approached me and they're like, hey, we need a walk manager for our fundraiser because ours quit. We're just like seven months away from this walk. It's already been started and we don't really have time to spend three, four months hiring somebody. So we want to hire you on a temporary basis just to get us through the walk. So they, they gave me a temp position. They gave me like a, you know, a seven or eight month contract, not very long. It was just for the single walk season. And then they said we would evaluate where we were when we were done. I made it through on that contract just as a temporary employee. And then I got hired full time and I spent three and a half years there hmm. in fundraising. And then when I left there, I went to a, another mental health organization. I, I was promoted. I went from uh, just being, you know, walk manager and fundraiser to a full-fledged community relations director, still in charge of fundraising, but, you know, development director. But I had more responsibilities, got to talk to more people, raised my profile. And and then I was there for several years. But while I was doing that, I was also building the podcast. And I was also, you know, I had a, a budding speaker's career and I mm-hmm. released a book. And, you know, just things were happening. I basically had a side hustle. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. But yeah. my, my side hustle was being a public speaker and podcasting while I also had a full-time job. And eventually the side hustle started to overcome the quote unquote day job. And my executive director, whom I love and, and think the world of, she just approached me one day and she goes, you know, Gabe, you're just taking a lot of time off to go give these speeches. You're, you're mm-hmm. taking a lot of time off to go do these projects. And, you know, the nonprofit wasn't losing money on it. You know, I would take either my vacation days uh, or unpaid leave. But she said, here's the thing, Gabe, I I think we're holding you back. Mm. I I think you really need to jump into this full time. And I said, well, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. It's, I definitely want to be a a speaker, a podcaster, an author, a mental health advocate full time. I do, but it's, it's kind of scary. Right. And she's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very scary, but you're going to have to pick a lane here. It's no longer this little side job you have. It's, 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 it's become a distraction. And she was so great and so honest and so upfront. And, and ultimately I decided, 
to go off and be this, to throw out my own shingle and be a full-time you know, speaker, podcaster, mental health advocate. And it's worked like gangbusters. <laughs> and I will say it, it is always nice to be in charge of your own schedule. Corporate is nine to five, very rigid. You've got to follow these rules. I'm in charge of my own schedule. Somebody says, hey, Gabe, do you want to come here and speak? If I don't want to, I can say no. Whereas when you work for a company, you have to do what they tell you to, even if you're uncomfortable with it. There's a lot of freedom, but there's also a lot of pressure. It's very feast or famine. I can have five speeches in a month and everybody's like, wow, you made how much in a month? That's incredible. And then the next four months, I can have zero speeches. Then they're like, oh my God, how do you live on that? So here's my last question for you, and it's kind of challenging. Is it possible for people like us to make it in corporate America as it is now? You know, one of the media narratives in all this coverage of mental health is that people who have bipolar, for example, just have to be their own bosses. They can't fit in. And I know this to be a little bit true, but I also want to talk to the people out there who are like us, who do work for other people because they're the majority. These are always really hard questions to ask because I'm sort of in the camp with you that if you said, okay, Gabe, you've got to pick. We're going to go get every single bipolar disordered person in the world and we're going to decide if the majority of them need to be self-employed or can work for a rigid corporate structure. And if 51% or more need to be self-employed, you lose. Which side are you betting on? Yeah. I would say that that probably the a large majority of people living with bipolar disorder, managing bipolar disorder, they need the flexibility to create their own routines. And as of right now, that is something that corporations don't offer. That said, the world is shifting. Millennials have done an incredible amount for work-life balance with flex scheduling, with work from home. So the reality is, is I really think that it may have already shifted, especially with the pandemic, because I know a lot of my bi- bipolar peers who are working for huge companies, Fortune 500 companies at really high levels. And I'm like, how do you do it? And they're like, I work from home. Yep. Well, yeah. Yeah. That really changes things. Where I have my podcast is hosted by Healthline Media, a huge tech company, largest website in the world for health. So it's a giant corporation. Something like 50% of the staff never sets foot in an (laughs) office. Now, I have not polled them to figure out how many of them are living with bipolar disorder. But I got to tell you, if somebody walked up to me and said, Gabe, I'm a computer programmer and I've been self-employed all along, but I'm thinking about going to corporate America. I'd say, you know what? I know for a fact that companies like Healthline, companies like Amazon, companies, they're they're desperate for programmers and they're allowing them to work from home and they're judging them by their work, not their hours. So again, Healthline is like, hey, here's your project. It's due on Monday. They don't care when you do it. They they don't care if you do it all in one day and then never talk to them for the rest of the week. They don't care if you do it two hours with a two-hour break, two hours with a two-hour break. So all of that said, the corporate structure that we have in our mind from our parents and our grandparents, yeah, I I don't think that many people living with bipolar disorder can excel in that structure. But that structure is rapidly, 
rapidly changing. And I think we're going to see a much bigger shift to people with bipolar disorder being able to blend in with the new thinking of companies. And I think that's a really great thing. But I, I do want to say to all of these companies, you need to be truly inclusive. You need to understand all of this stuff. And many companies are still denying basic ADA accommodations because they don't realize that it's a reasonable accommodation to ask for extra breaks in a day. Like we're hard thrusting and we work hard and we're aggressive and we don't stop. Like, yeah, that's illegal, very problematic, kind of toxic. And you're going to lose out on really, really, really great employees doing that. Everybody needs that. I mean, at the end of the day, all of this stuff helps everybody. Flexibility, the ability to work from home, agency to be treated like an adult and go to the bathroom when you need to or go exercise when you need to. Like this stuff is not rocket science. And I think that I think that we have to approach it as like much more basic and fundamental than it is. I could but not agree more. I'll end my rant there. Gabe, I want to thank you so much. It's a great rant. You should do it more. I, okay. I just wanted to say that. I mean, one, you're welcome. Thank you. But please rant more. Just the world needs to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.